You guys ever seen that picture of old painting of Jesus? He's walking through a garden, and he's kind of like the Aryan Jesus, but he's walking through a garden, and he's coming up to a door, and he's knocking on the door, but there's no door handle on the outside because it's the door to your heart, which can only be opened from the inside. You ever seen that picture? Okay. Yeah, not my experience at all with Jesus. I uh, wrote about it, a little short story. It's called The Unwelcomed. He was steadily approaching, and I was throwing everything I could against the inside of the door to stop him from breaking through. I piled up desks, chairs, the couch, and whole shelves of books. Sweat stung my eyes and plastered my T-shirt to my back, shoved out of every pore by the fear that had wedged into my stomach and now mushroomed throughout my body. But the fear gave me strength. Quickly, I finished. I fought to slow my gasping breath and strained to hear above the pounding in my ears. The sound of his footsteps on the crushed stone walk came muffled through my barricade. Why had I listened? My friends warned me. He was a kook, a liar. Why had I thought differently? Stories about him had circulated around town for years. Most of the guys I hung around with didn't even believe that he existed, said the stories about him were hoaxes, just like the one about the Main Street haunted house. They told me that our parents made him up just to scare us into keeping in line, but not me. I half believed the old tales about him were true. I should never have started this foolishness. Why did I go out looking for him? I was reckless. Still, I remember the excitement when I began, the awe of hearing still more of the old stories about him. They were like fairy tales, too amazing to be true. If I had known then what I know now, if I had known that a fairy tale about to come true is as frightening as being one door away from death, I'd never have gone this. No, he's knocking. Get away, I screamed. Leave me alone. The terror inside me kept mounting. But you asked me to come, he replied. It's him. Really him. Not a myth, not a hoax. But he knocked again. Don't you want me to come in, he asked. Of course I don't, a voice inside me screamed. Yet deeper, somewhere in the caverns of my soul, echoed that intense longing to finally know this strange man. Do you want me to come in, he asked again, in the same level voice as before. If he only knew. Something inside struggled to form the word yes, but my throat wouldn't let it pass. If he walks through that door, what will I do? What will I say? Where can I hide? Would you like me to help you? He asked. Help me? He knows. He can read my mind. Suddenly it became clear all the legend about him were true. With his power, he could break through that door in a microsecond. I know it. How could I stop him? Thinking about continuing to fight him off makes my arms so heavy they feel useless. I want to give up, but I'm afraid to give up. What will he do to me? I fear death. They said he really was a good man. Wherever I run, he'll find me. I want to give in. I am giving in. All common sense dies. The light was blinding, immense, like a hundred million suns. 
The door disintegrated. Hunks of furniture flew past me. Book pages fluttered down like the wings of a thousand white doves. And then in the silence, there was peace. And he stood before me. The blast had not harmed me at all, only knocked me to my knees. There I stayed, head down and sobbing, my shoulders heaving and tears flowing like they hadn't done since I was a child. I felt his scarred hand cradle my chin. I shut my eyes. Slowly he lifted my face up, then tenderly like a mother with her newborn, began wiping the tears away with his fingertips. I opened my eyes to see him for the first time. So, the unwelcomed. Kind of a metaphorical view of my own conversion experience. Those of you who know me knew that I went to a Bible study to find out that the Bible wasn't true and that somehow I could get away with all the things I had planned to do, all the evil that I had planned to finally let out of a little box in my soul. Not very too much unlike the story of Jesus we're going to read today from Mark chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. From the NIV, I'm going to read, and I'll stop and make comments as we go along. Should be right back there on a on the wall. All right. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. There was uh, a place over, I think it's the northeast part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they call the area the Decapolis also. It was tent cities, uh, Gentile cities for the most part. Uh, what we know today is part of the Golan Heights. So if you're a geography buff and you know about Israel, it's that part of real estate which is very still hotly disputed between uh, the Jews and the uh, Arab folks who had lived there for some time. Not unlike it was a couple thousand years ago. So here's Jesus, a Jew, devout Jew, and a bunch of Jewish men, Jewish fishermen, and his followers going across, and they land in this predominantly Gentile territory. When Jesus got out of the boat, verse 2, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. We've encountered demon possession before. In the Gospel of Mark, none as dramatic as this guy right off the bat. This guy lives in the cemetery. This guy wanders around at night howling like an animal. 
He cuts himself with stones. People have been concerned. Neighbors have been concerned. I don't know why. Maybe he was bad for business being in the area because, you know, you got this madman living in the tombs down the street from your shop and, uh, you know, people may not want to walk by there to get to your shop. It's scary enough walking by a cemetery anyway. (laughs) Anyway, so... (laughs) Sorry. So, he's ritually unclean. If you were a Jew, you could not be around a dead body. That made you unclean enough not to be able to go to the temple. You had to go through a cleansing ritual, uh, things like that. And you really shouldn't even be near people who were around dead bodies. So this guy is ceremonially unclean right from the get-go, right? But even more than that, um, he was violent, and people had tried to curtail him before, but he was so strong that he tore apart the chains and shattered the fetters like they were paper. This guy had what amounts to supernatural strength. No one could contain him. Reminds me of the story of the uh, seven sons of Sceva. Anybody remember the band called Black Eyed Sceva here? Okay. Black Eyed Sceva's name taken from... uh, one of the sons of this guy named Skiva who tried to uh, do an exorcism, do deliverance on this guy, but the demon was so powerful it overpowered all seven brothers, and they fled cut and bleeding. So it's not unusual, at least in the stories we read in the Bible, that some people have this kind of superhuman strength. And he cries out and cuts himself. What a lonely existence. What's a lonely existence? And Jesus shows up there. Verse 6. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. All right. We've got a drama going on right away. This guy is demon-possessed. And sometime before Mark tells us about it, Jesus is calling the demon out of the man like he had so many times before. And this dude comes running down to be in front of Jesus. And he falls to his knees in front of Jesus. Now, does that strike you as odd? I'm thinking, if I'm a demon and I'm inside somebody, the last thing I want to do is go and fall on my knees in front of Jesus. That sounds like stupid. You know, know, you're going (laughs) to, I don't know. It's like a pirate running down the hill and falling on his knees in front of a ninja. I mean, just not a good idea. And then Jesus asks him what his name is. 
He asks the man what his name is. Let me make that really clear. He asks the man what his name is. If you look at the Greek, he's asking him. It's a masculine pronoun. Asking him, not it. In Greek, a spirit is neuter. It's an it. So Jesus is not asking the spirit what its name is. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that kind of thing going on from people of God who are trying to expel demons. They're not trying to find out the name of the demon. Jesus asked the guy what his name is. But you know what? All of a sudden the demons take over and the guy can't, even though he's run down there to be in front of Jesus, which my guess is was his doing, the demons at this point take over. And they say, My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So, doesn't really give Jesus a name, gives him a number. Not specific at all, because there are so many demons in this guy that they're called Legion. Now, Legion, Roman Legion was, you know, Thousands of dudes, 6,000, they say. A couple hundred cavalry. Cavalry, sorry. And um, I don't know if the demon is being specific here or just saying, there's a hell of a lot of us. Because that would be just as accurate. And then there's this bargaining that begins to take place. The demons beg Jesus not to send them out of the area. I don't know if these are territorial demons. It could be. But one thing I do know from places in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11 that demons abhor a vacuum. Jesus says that when a demon is cast out, it goes to these dry, waterless places. And then it says to itself, I I think I'll return to the house from which I came. And it returns to find the house clean and swept. And so it invites seven other more demons, more evil than itself, to come into that person. And then the final state of that person who was delivered from the demon is worse than the first because now they've got like eight demons rolling around inside of them. This is a point of information. There's a spirit world. Let me say that Jesus is letting us in on something here. That demons like to be attached to people. They're like spiritual parasites. They're like germs uh, that need a host And if they don't have it, then they're in pain. At least some demons are that way. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go unto them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out 
and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. If you're from PETA tonight, I mean, this probably isn't the best passage for you. If you like bacon, this probably isn't the best passage for you. Kind of an equal opportunity offensive passage. I want to make a note here that Jesus is not making the pigs run down like crazy and drown themselves in the Sea of Galilee. The demons are doing that. Jesus is being merciful. He is healing a man of demon possession. I want to make a couple notes here as we go along. Uh, One of the things I want you to realize is that uh, there is no yin-yang thing going on here where evil is part of good and good is part of evil. Uh, There's a battle going on. And it's made pretty clear that uh, Jesus is locked in combat with these demons who are pleading for mercy. It's not the same, and good and evil are not of equal power. In this day of Eastern philosophy, you need to know that. You need to know that. Also, there are varying degrees of control that Satan has on certain people. Here we see this guy involved in a struggle, it seems, to encounter Jesus. He runs toward Jesus, he falls at his feet. And then the demons inside him take over. I've read stories uh, just recently about even people here in Denver who have had this kind of an experience with demons where sometimes they can keep the demons from making them spit upon the Christian or cuss at the Christians, and sometimes they can't. Even within this own man's life, there is this struggle going on. If you at all have um, read other parts of Scripture, this is interesting. There's a guy here who wrote a song called Many Sparrows. Is that what it's called? What's it called? Yeah. And the phrase comes over and over in the song, uh, you're worth more than many sparrows, which most people don't know is borrowed from a line that Jesus actually said. He says that we are worth more than many sparrows. Well, it appears that what Jesus would also say, you're worth more than many pigs. That wouldn't go as well in a song. (laughs) At least a couple thousand pigs... And that's got to make you feel good that the God of the universe thinks more of you than he thinks of 
Birds are pigs. Again, my apologies to the Peter crowd. But these are the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. Okay. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Yeah, no kidding. No, none of them could have even approached this guy without getting beat up. He was breaking chains and fetters, but Jesus comes and with words takes care of the guy's problem. And they're afraid. (laughs) They're just afraid. Because all of a sudden, there's a power here greater than the madman who wandered the tombs. That's spooky. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. All right. So maybe it's understood this guy was demon-possessed. All right. Instead of welcoming Christ in their midst... They want him gone. They could tolerate the demon-possessed man, but they can't tolerate the Prince of Peace. They consider the Holy Spirit more dangerous than a couple thousand demonic spirits. How screwed up is that? They're afraid, and they ask them to leave because I think religion is okay as long as it doesn't get into profits. Because that's a lot of money that just drowned itself in the lake. And what are we to say about the man? This man is unclean. He's unclean physically. He's unclean ceremonially. He's unclean spiritually. As unclean as one could get. And he was worth Jesus' time. The guy didn't even have an appointment. And Jesus took time to set him free. And then the end of the story. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the first apostle to the Gentiles. 
as far as I can tell. I mean, Paul coined the phrase, but this guy was before the Apostle Paul. And he goes back to his hometown and the region around that, and he starts telling people all about Jesus. He's like the sower we read about in the last chapter of Mark who starts to spread the seed. And we know from church history that a couple years later, that seed sprouted and produced a harvest because people were coming to Christ in droves, especially among the Gentiles. Read the Acts of the Apostles. So this guy goes from being somebody nobody wants to be around, somebody nobody wants to listen to, somebody they want to lock up and put away, to being the one who prepares whole region for Christianity. It was like he was the lowest of the low. He didn't come back up to ground zero. He went way up here. And that's the way God works. The more decrepit you are, the worse person you are, the more evil that has infiltrated your soul, the better saint you can be. Just look at the history of the church. Just look at the history of the church. I'm saying there's not just a small amount of hope if you're way far away from Jesus. I'm saying there's a tremendous amount of hope for your life and what it can become. I talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about demonic deliverance for the first time. But let me just remind you that demons are real. There's a spiritual world that you don't see that they're out to entangle and enslave as many souls as they possibly can. This is where that old adage really rings true. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Because they are. I remember the first time this happened at Scum. There was a kid I had met in a goth club here in town. And... He had this cloud over him, you know, just this kind of dark cloud. And uh, invited him to church. He came to church over the toll gate. After the service, he came up to me and said, could you pray for me? I said, sure, what would you like prayer for? Well, I have four demons living inside of me, and um, I need you to pray for me. I went, oh, Okay, why don't you go upstairs and wait for me there? I'll be right back with you. And so I went and I grabbed a few people. And we went upstairs. Ling was Melanie, Owen Padilla, Leonor, and Reese, right? No, Ruth Peters, can't remember. Anyway, there were three of us went up there. One for each demon. Three and me. And uh, <laughs> it was interesting, to say the least. It wasn't like the movie stuff, you know, where people's heads spin around 360 and they vomit, you know, green pea soup 
and say things like that. Um, but we started praying, and he started getting like really pissed off and angry. Like, started breathing real hard like a bull ready to charge. You know, I was going, oh, God, protect us, help us. Oh, geez. I do not want somebody with superhuman strength coming after the three of us, you know. And, um, well, anyway, we uh, were given what I would only call supernatural wisdom and strength and stamina, and we called out four demons, and he was delivered. I'll never forget the next week, he was in church, full goth regalia. I mean, the boots, the skirt, the fishnet sleeves, some black t-shirt with some half-naked lady on it, you know, mascara, eyeliner, the whole deal, black fingernails with his head back raised, his hands up in the air, praising God during the worship. I remember thinking to myself, that's a picture that will keep me going for the next few years. <laughs> I think I talked about the other one one other time. But I just want to say, this stuff is real. It happens. And Jesus is there to deliver. I've always liked C.S. Lewis. I didn't read his autobiography until years after I wrote that story that I read you at the beginning. But let me tell you what Lewis says in his book, Surprised by Joy. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen College, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? Here's the good news. C.S. Lewis was conflicted about whether or not to come to Jesus. And Jesus came and got him because he wasn't strong enough to do it on his own. Here's the good news, folks. We may be conflicted about coming to Jesus for the first time or for the hundredth time about an area of our life that we've kept in darkness. And his slow, steady, unrelenting approach marks the end of our darkness. When God drew Lewis's heart to himself, Lewis became conscious of his own sinfulness. And he writes this, For the first time I examined myself 
with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name is Legion. Now, maybe you're dealing with the very obvious demonic possession like the guy in the story. And maybe the evil that you struggle with is much more subtle. You might call them lusts, ambitions, fears, and hatreds. In either case, Jesus is here to set you free. Now, when society finds these things in us, fears, ambitions, whatever, they usually try and curtail us somehow. If you're really bad, they'll put you in the penitentiary. But they'll ostracize you. You won't be part of the in crowd. You'll be left wandering and alone, maybe howling at night, all alone, wishing for some company. Maybe you're inflicting damage upon your own soul. You're cutting yourself, even physically. But society wants nothing to do with you. They're like the townspeople who had made an uneasy truce with a demoniac. And they said, you know what, as long as he stays out there in the cemetery, we don't care. Just stay away from my town, stay away from my family, stay away from my business. And that's the way society deals with us when our darkness starts pouring out. And then let's look at the man himself. I think he had made a deal, an uneasy truth with his own demons. Yeah, you can live over there. I can tolerate you in this corner or in that corner or in this corner until there were so many he couldn't keep them in their corners any longer and they were taking over his life. How many dark corners do you have in your life? The secret lusts that you keep hidden away, that you only indulge in once every couple of months. The hatreds that you nurse that nobody knows about because you go to work and you smile, you go to church and you smile. But you focus on hating people, places, things. The question I have for all of us, do we have as much sense as a madman to run down the hill and fall at the feet of Jesus? Or are we like the townspeople who make an uneasy truce with evil? 
We all feel this way at first. Even the Apostle Peter, when he first is confronted with the holiness of Jesus, he says this. He says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. That's Luke chapter 5, verse 8. The whole nation of Israel in the Old Testament, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Exodus chapter 20. The prophet Isaiah, the great prophet, the one who told about the coming of Christ, said this in chapter 6 of Isaiah, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among, a, live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We all have that initial reaction to holiness. We want to get away because we're hiding the darkness. We don't want it to be brought out in the light. Every one of us has that initially. But the question is, are you going to struggle? And are you going to run? And are you going to fall down at the feet of Jesus? It's like Jesus is asking us the same thing he asked that paralytic in John chapter 5. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? After the talk tonight, we're going to have some people over here in this brown room. We call it the prayer cave. Willing to pray with you. If there's evil in your life, you refuse to exist in an uneasy truth, truce with, then fall at the feet of Jesus with somebody in the prayer cave. And he will begin to deal with it. He will deal with it. If the prayer cave just isn't your thing, but you know some Christians, like you came here with some people who call on the name of Christ, you can pray with them anytime. Because the church is the expression of Christ on the earth. And as imperfect as we all are, we are still the hands and the feet of the Christ. And we will go to the mat for you. So pray with the people that you know, the ones that brought you. Whether you do it here during the worship afterwards or whether you do it in the car or whether you do it someplace else after the church service is over, if you come and you fall at the feet of Jesus, he will not disappoint you. What are your demons? What are your addictions? Will you continue to live in an uneasy truce? Or you will allow or will you allow Jesus to blast them? Because it's war, folks. This is war. And good is more powerful 
and triumphs. And once you've done that, and I don't care if the struggle takes years or if it takes just one night, you will have a story to tell just like the demoniac in this story. You will. And God will use you to plant seeds that no one else could plant. Seeds of his word in the hearts of your friends and your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow students. He will use you just like he used this man. And you will go from being here, despising yourself, up here being applauded by God himself pray with me please oh Lord we fall at your feet we are full of unclean things the dark corners of our life that we try to hide from you and from others. And today, Lord, we're bringing them out into the light. And we're asking you to speak the word and we shall be cleansed. For you, Jesus, are the name above all names. And to you, every demon must bow and confess that you are Lord. And do what you say. And Lord, then fill us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. So there's no more room. So the house is clean and swept, but full of life and love. And the presence of Christ. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.